Good evening from Charleston. I'm Bob Brunner. Thanks for joining us for the legislature today. In a legislative session already filled with unexpected twists and turns, Governor Jim Justice tested positive for COVID-19 Tuesday evening. Here to tell us what that means for the legislative session and the state, Appalachia Health News reporter Emily Rice. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. When the governor began to experience a sudden onset of symptoms Tuesday night, he immediately sought a COVID test and tested positive. He's fully vaccinated and boosted and is experiencing mild symptoms at the time, but this is his second go around with COVID. Uh, he's isolating at home with family and friends, being treated by several physicians, including our state coronavirus czar, Dr. Clay Marsh. Does his illness affect the actual proceedings of the session? It won't affect it directly. Uh, while there will be a few momentary hangups, most of everyone the governor has been in close contact with over the few days has been notified and everyone's being tested. Uh, Justice is in communication with his chief of staff and office staff to ensure that the state government continues to run properly. So is the state as a whole dealing with the COVID surge again? Is this just a, a, a glitch? <laughs> Well, West Virginia saw its numbers surge after the holidays with thousands testing positive for the virus. However, those numbers are stabilizing throughout the state with 911 active cases reported today as opposed to 1,079 active cases last week. Thanks, Emily. Today, Jan Lilly Stewart Disability Advocacy Day at the Capitol. As Chris Scholes reports, it's an opportunity for the disability community to come together and let their voices be heard. Paul Smith is the director of the Fair Shake Network, a grassroots organization of West Virginians dedicated to educating the public on issues that affect people with disabilities. Smith said Wednesday was the culmination of a two-day event to empower people with disabilities to advocate for themselves at the legislature, particularly around funding. The last three years, the governor's budget has been a flat budget, and we love that things don't get cut, but in reality, with inflation and such, it's really a cut, when you, especially over a three-year period. Smith said it's a constant fight for people with disabilities to make sure their rights don't get cut or shortened. Christy Black is the advocate specialist at the West Virginia Developmental Disabilities Council. She said advocacy the, days like today are important to give legislators perspective. Council, but I'm also a parent of a child with a developmental disabilities. And so, you know, unless you live it, it's sometimes hard to understand um, the, the challenges that people face. Both Smith and Black said they will be following House Bill 2505 closely. The bill would introduce the option for West Virginians with developmental disabilities to make their own decisions with help from trusted individuals as an additional option to guardianships. During their session Wednesday, the Senate approved Resolution 9, designating January 18, 2023 as Jan Lilly Stewart Disability Advocacy Day. For the legislature today, I'm Chris Schultz in Charleston. Today, the House of Delegates overwhelmingly passed its version of Governor Jim Justice's 50% income tax reduction proposal. But before that happened, the Democratic minority proposed an even deeper tax cut for lower income taxpayers. Randy Yowie has our story. House Bill 2526, a plan to reduce personal income tax, passed the full House with 94 yeas, 2 nays, and 4 absent. The bill generally lays out a 50% income tax cut for everyone, phased in over three years, with 30% the first year and 10% the next two. 
Minutes before the session began, House Democrats held a press conference announcing their own amendment to the tax cut plan. They proposed a 100% tax cut for West Virginians earning $80,000 or less a year. Delegate Sean Fluharty, Democrat from Ohio County, explained the benefit would extend to more than two-thirds of the taxpaying population. That looks like your colleagues, it looks like your neighbors, and it looks like your community. 72% of West Virginians make under $80,000 per year. Our goal is to eliminate the personal income taxes for those earners. Now everybody will get a break. Those making over 80000 will also see a break as well. In contrast with the plan that's been presented from the GOP, we're hitting hardworking West Virginians, not just those who are the top 1%. And we're going to do so next fiscal year, upcoming immediate relief. Finance Committee member Larry Rowe, a Democrat from Kanawha County, explained that the 100% low-income tax cut would be more equitable across the board. At $80,000, there will be a tax savings to, to taxpayers of $4,000 under our plan, 100%. The governor's cuts it in half to $2,000. For somebody reporting $1 million in taxes gets a $30,000 tax break at one half. And so you can see that it's loaded toward the money end on the governor's plan is loaded toward high income folks, the regular people that we want to represent, the people you see every day just driving around, going through fast food places, having people help you with your yard, help you with your, your cleaning. All of those folks pay zero state tax. Finance co-chair John Hardy, Republican from Berkeley County, offered a response to the Democratic amendment, calling it severely flawed. What they failed to tell you was if we implement the plan that they're looking for, it will leave a 67% hole in our budget from day one. The plan that the House has come up with and we're uh, working on and trying to get passed today over to the Senate is a more uh, comprehensive plan that moves slower. Uh, it is a much safer way and a fiscally responsible way to move. Democrats' amendment lost overwhelmingly in the House by a vote of 11 in favor and 86 opposed. The bill then went to floor debate. Delegate Sean Hornbuckle, Democrat from Cabell County, talked about working in the spirit of compromise. And this is a good time to approach that topic. And I want to thank the governor for digging down in his Democrat ways and bringing this plan to the forefront. But we just think we just need to tweak it just a little bit so that it's supporting all West Virginians and how we go about doing that. Finance Committee Chair Eric Householder, Republican from Berkeley County, said the Democrats were trying to pull the wool over delegates' eyes. By his own admission, he said the median average income in West Virginia, I believe, was $50,884. I believe that's what you said. I believe that's what you said. That was the median income. So with that being said, just think about it. If you have your spouse makes $40,000 a year, which is not a lot of money, I would agree, and if you make $40,000 a year, guess what? You're now going to be in our highest tax bracket. The bill now passes over to the Senate. So how will this Senate receive the House's finalized tax cut plan? Well, I talked with Speaker Hanshaw. He seemed cautiously optimistic. He said that the House and Senate were talking taxes every day. Now, some senators are raising concerns that the governor's budget might not cover a laundry list of state expenses with a major loss of that income tax revenue. We know that the Senate is preparing its own version of a strategic tax plan. We'll see how it all shakes out. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yoey. Things got a little contentious during the Senate Finance Committee's meeting Tuesday afternoon as Chris Schulz reports 
legislators are still wary of the governor's 50% personal income tax cut. Department of Revenue Secretary Dave Hardy presented a budget overview of fiscal year 2024 to the committee. After his presentation, the senators grilled Hardy for over an hour about how the governor proposed to pay for a 50% cut to personal income tax in the long term. Some, like committee vice chair Senator Rupi Phillips of Logan, questioned how Hardy could speak in favor of one tax cut after rejecting the legislature's proposed cuts to personal property tax. And, you know, we're facing uh, PIA issues, uh, uh, funding for jails. You know, we're, we're facing a lot of issues, and, you know, I've just... I just picked three things that it was totaling right at whole 1.5 billion. I just don't see, uh, I guess you could say, where's the pixie dust coming from to make it work? Hardy was part of the governor's statewide tour opposing Amendment 2 in the lead up to the vote this past November. Senators also voiced concerns of federal clawbacks of American Rescue Plan funds, which account for a significant portion of the governor's projected surplus and would be used as a savings account against lost revenue from the personal income tax cut. For the Legislature Today, I'm Chris Schultz in Charleston. The Senate today passed Senate Bill 83, which would authorize tactical medical professionals to carry a firearm. Before the vote, Senate Majority Leader Tom Takubo of Kanawha County took the opportunity to clarify that the bill pertains specifically to medical professionals supporting law enforcement. Thank you, Mr. President. I would just like to uh, point out what the bill does not do, just from several questions. It does not allow uh, medical personnel, doctors, nurses, etc., to just carry firearms into a hospital. It does not allow EMS to carry firearms. Uh, this bill is specifically only for those personnel that are backing up law enforcement agencies uh, in a tactical situation that, number one, the medical personnel chooses to undergo the rigors of the qualifications of being qualified and two, permissive language by that law enforcement agency that they um, also agree that they should be doing that. The budget is the only piece of legislation that must be passed every year, but approaches on how it should be structured vary widely. Republicans hold that supermajority, but at this time, they are divided on how to deliver promised tax cuts to West Virginians. Reporter Chris Schull sits down with senior policy analyst Sean O'Leary to discuss those possibilities. Sean O'Leary is the senior policy analyst at the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy. He joins me now in the legislature today. Sean, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And I did get the title right there. You got it right. Okay, great. So, Sean, the talk at the Capitol right now is Governor Justice's proposed 50% cut to personal income tax. You've been quite vocal against this cut, the so-called financial tsunami. Uh, why do you think it's not the right move? I mean, this is this is the third or fourth time we've seen Governor Justice propose something like this, um, and it's the same problem that we see with every proposal. Um, the the tax cuts offer very little to low and middle income households in West Virginia. It offers big big tax cuts for for the the high income households for the very wealthy in West Virginia, and it would create huge problems in the budget. I mean, we've got you know some surplus money right now. That's one-time money, that's temporary money. You start looking down the line, we start having major, major budget problems pretty quickly and no solution for them. And when that income tax revenue goes away, it becomes increasingly difficult to, to address a myriad of state needs. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the surplus because I wanna get into that with you in just a moment. But even just last night, we saw the Senate Finance Committee um, 
kind of talk exactly about what you're talking about. You know, the fact that uh, if we do this 50% cut, where is that money coming from when it's not coming from personal income tax? And exactly what you just said, you know, we heard is another governor going to have to come in and undo this in a couple of years? Right. So what exactly, can you, can you lay this out a little bit? I mean, what would be the impact to the budget if we did this 50% cut, let's say five years down the road? I mean, so right now the personal income tax is about 43% of the total budget. So if you cut that in half, that's 25% of the budget that's gone. Um, that's 25% of the budget that, and then when you look at the areas of the budget that you fund, that you have to fund, is public education and Medicaid, that's two thirds of the budget. So then you're looking at the areas of the budget that you can cut. You're talking about higher ed, you're talking about corrections, you're talking about the legislative, the, the judicial branch, commerce, economic development. That adds up to about 30% of the budget. So you're talking about just wholesale cuts, eliminating agencies, eliminating programs, eliminating huge areas of the budget um, that are necessary, that are needed for the people of the state of West Virginia. Or you're talking about raising other taxes, which would then offset any savings that you would see from an income tax cut, particularly for low and middle income households. Because as we've seen from the Senate in the past, those proposals raise taxes on low and middle income households to cut them on high income households. Sean, the counter argument, the justification for these cuts that's being made is the surplus that we're seeing right now. I mean, we're getting close to a billion dollars uh, being thrown around as the surplus that we could be possibly working with here. But you've expressed doubt about several aspects of the reported surplus. Uh, what's the issue with, let's start with the severance boom. Yeah, so, so right now, uh, in this current fiscal year, you know, as, as we define a surplus, and, and in West Virginia, you know, we don't define a surplus as this is how much money we have left over after all of our needs have been met, after all of our bills have been paid. We define a surplus as, well, we estimated we were going to bring in $4.8 billion, and we actually brought in $5.8 billion. So we just keep estimating that we're gonna bring in 4.6, $4.8 million, even though we know the previous years we've been bringing in a lot more. Um, so there's a problem with the surplus right there is that it kind of just exists on paper. Um, but then you start looking at the numbers behind that surplus of where that you know, additional money above the estimate is coming from, and half of it is coming from the severance tax. And we know from multiple sources that that is natural gas prices going up, natural gas prices going up because of international incidents like Russia invading Ukraine. And we also know that's temporary. We know from the revenue secretaries, from the, the um, presentations that have been given to the Senate Finance Committee, to the House Finance Committee, to the Energy Information Agency that's putting out data that energy prices are expected to come down next year. So the, and the severance tax does this. The severance tax goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down, it goes through a boom and bust cycle year after year. So to rely on the severance tax fueling the surplus to pay for a permanent income tax cut is gonna create problems down the road. Because while we've got severance tax revenues going through the roof right now, that's not guaranteed and that's almost guaranteed too go away, which is why, you know, you heard Senator Tarr last night say, you know, this plan would guarantee budget cuts in the future. So I want to back up here just one second, because it's something that I've been puzzling over since I first saw you talk about it last month. And it's these the estimate aspect of the surplus. 
Uh, how is that estimate being calculated? Well, that is, that is something that's different in West Virginia that is, than it is in most states. In most states, there's a consensus revenue estimate. The legislature comes together with the governor, comes together with economic estimates, economic experts, and try to figure out how much money will we raise based on the economy, based on where we expect the economy to go, based on our tax structure. That's not how we do it in West Virginia. In West Virginia, it's the governor's office that comes up with the revenue estimate. And they have been saying these past four years, we are coming up with a revenue estimate that matches what we want to spend in the budget. Not how much we expect the economy to produce, not how much money we expect our tax structure to produce, but how much we want to spend. And we want to keep a flat budget. So even last year, they produced what they called unofficial revenue estimates where they said, well, our official revenue estimate's 4.6 billion, but our unofficial revenue estimate based on the economy, based on our tax structure, that's 5.6 billion. So built into the revenue estimate is a billion dollar surplus. Um, and then what happens is the legislature is bound by the governor's revenue estimate. So they cannot appropriate $1 more than the governor's revenue estimate. So if the governor says the revenue estimate is 4.8 billion, but they've got an unofficial revenue estimate that says it's actually 5.8 billion, the legislature is stuck at 4.8 billion. So then you automatically have a surplus built in just because you kept that revenue estimate so low. So one of the things that we heard last night was this differentiation between the personal income tax cut and the Amendment 2 cut. And there was, you know, uh, the contention that we've heard reported from that meeting last night came from, you know, mm -hmm. the kind of people butting heads on that topic and why can we do one and not the other. Um, can you explain why Amendment 2 was different? Um, so, you know, like in, and I believe it was Secretary Hardy who said, you know, Amendment 2 would be a, a shipwreck to the state budget. Um, from, budgeting, from a budgeting 101 perspective, so Amendment 2 would have cut property taxes at the local level, and the state would have been paying $500, $500 million a year to the counties. Now, from a budgeting perspective, Budgeting 101 says $500 million in spending and $500 million in revenue reduction are the same thing. There's no difference when it comes to the budget. So if we cannot afford to spend $500 a year sending money to the counties, then we cannot afford to cut $500 million in taxes. And we're not even proposing $500 million in taxes. The governor is proposing $1.5 billion in taxes. And from a budgetary perspective, it's the same thing. The, the, the numbers have to add up. Um, and if it's on this side of the ledger or if it's on this side of the ledger, the numbers have to match. So if $500 is too much here, then $1.5 billion is too much here. So talking about different sides of the ledger, or maybe actually the same size of the ledger, but starting to zoom in a little bit, um, you know, we said that the surplus is the justification for the cut. Part of the surplus justification is the ARPA money that we are kind of holding on to right now. But one of the big concerns that we've heard is that we could potentially be seeing federal clawbacks. What's that all about? Yeah, so, so there, there was rules with ARPA that you could not cut taxes below a certain baseline, you know, pre-pandemic. Um, and, and we've seen this come up before in previous years where tax cut proposals may have put us you know, below that baseline. So the governor proposed you know, using last year's surplus, which again was kind of based on ARPA, was kind of based on natural gas taxes, and using that to backfill 
the budget with the, in, in, with the income tax cuts. So it's sort of this workaround that we've seen a few times that's like violating the spirit of the ARPA law, but not violating the letter of the ARPA law. The ARPA money was supposed to be helping, you know, keep budgets um, intact, keeping services flowing, keeping public health departments flowing, all of those sorts of things. And instead we're banking $700 million of last year's surplus to put in an income tax reserve fund in case we can't actually do the income tax cut. And then we can say, well, we're using this money instead. But again, last year surplus, the year before surplus, there was $12 billion in federal aid that pumped into the economy during COVID. Um, between ARPA, CARES Act, Medicaid, unemployment benefits, stimulus checks, $12 billion. That's bigger than the coal and natural gas industry put together. So we're talking about a huge amount of money that was pumped in the economy, that inflated tax revenues, that generated the surplus, and now we're using that temporary surplus to say, well, let's do a permanent tax cut because things are gonna be like this forever. And we know things are not gonna be like this forever. So I've heard you use that word temporary a couple of different times, and it brings me to this next issue, starting to actually get into some of the expenditures that we might be seeing in this budget, and that's PEIA. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of temporary solutions to the issue of PEIA, um, but we actually finally saw some action on this this year uh, so far. Senator Ryan Weld, who sponsored the bill that the Senate passed on its first day, uh, even he said what he was proposing to be a first step. So what do we actually need to be done to secure PEIA's future? I mean, there's gonna to have to be a lot done. So we know from PIAs, they did a, a five-year projection. And they said by 2027, they're gonna need $376 million to keep things normal, to make sure there's no benefit cuts, to make sure there's no premium increases. Um, that's a big expense. That's a huge chunk of the budget, especially if you're talking about major tax cuts coming up. Um, and the solution for years now has been these half measures, you know, using surplus, using a rainy day fund. We'll give 40 million so we can keep our hospital reimbursements this year. We'll give 40 million so we can keep premiums from going up this year. We'll tap into the rainy day fund this year and next year, and then we'll put a little bit more money into it. But none of those address the core issue of we're not spending enough on PEIA. We are not investing enough to keep our public employees' health insurance to make sure that they can go to the hospital when they need to, that they can see their doctors, that their insurance is accepted. So it's going to take some, you know, bringing everyone to the table. We tried that a few years ago. We tried that in 2018. There was a PEIA task force. They came together. They came up with some recommendations. None of the recommendations were accepted. Um, so it's going to have to be some sort of combination. You know, you can't ask for it all to be premium increases because we're talking about a 50% premium increase for state employees to close that $376 million gap. Um, you're going to be, you think we have CPS shortages now, you think we have corrections teachers shortages now, wait till you increase their PI premiums by 50%. So Sean, we are getting close to um, the end of our time together and I just wanted to ask you very briefly, you've mentioned a couple of the I think you've mentioned teachers and corrections twice now. What would you like to actually see in our budget um, if you had your, your druthers? Right, so let, let's, you know, let's take this surplus. You know, if we've got a surplus, you know, it's temporary, that means you can do temporary things with it. So we can do things like replace some of the childcare subsidies that we lost under the CARES Act and ARPA money. That was keep, helping keep a lot of people into work. 
So we can extend that for another year, keep that going. We can start sending some of that money, that's a lot of that severance tax money, back to some of these cold natural gas counties because they've got plenty of infrastructure needs. Infrastructure is a great idea for using one-time money because it's a one-time expense and then you have the maintenance costs which are nothing like the initial costs. So we're talking about, you know, let's do some one-time improvements to the state instead of a permanent tax cut that's going to rob us of the ability to do anything in the future. Well, it's certainly very interesting. Uh, Sean, I want to thank you so much for being on the legislature today with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for that, Crisp. That brings day eight of our 60-day legislative session to a close. Tune in to the legislature today, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. We'll have more news and interviews from the 2023 legislative session. And remember, West Virginia Public Broadcasting covers the session daily in our radio news program, West Virginia Morning, and on our news sites at wvpublic.org. We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and Senate on the West Virginia channel, and we stream those on YouTube as well. I'm Bob Brunner. Thanks for joining us. Have a great evening.